Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. I am so excited to bring you today's guest because, you know, September means a lot of things in this country. It's the start of the school year. It's a change of seasons. In congressional life, it's the beginning of the end of the last legislative period that kind of runs through the end of the year. In political life, it is the period of greatest intensity from Labor Day to Election Day. But for me and so many millions of Americans, it also means professional football. And that's why I am so excited to bring you my next guest. Katie Hill is Senior Vice President of Communications for the National Football League, where she leads the organization's day-to-day communications operation. Before joining the NFL earlier this year, Katie was a staffer whose career took her to the White House, Capitol Hill, the private sector, and political campaigns. Immediately prior to joining the NFL, Katie was communications director for the office of President Barack Obama. And before that, she served as assistant press secretary and spokesperson at the White House from 2015 to 2017. Prior to that, she was national press secretary for healthcare at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Katie is deeply respected by everyone who has worked with her. And I think it says a lot that when President Obama left office and took only a few staffers with him, he took Katie. Her leadership and talents have been recognized publicly as well. In 2016, Out Magazine named her to its list of 100 LGBTQ leaders who work to advance equality. Katie and I recorded this episode on Friday, September 24th. This Sunday is week four in the NFL schedule. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you are a fan of a team in the NFC East, except for the New York Giants, personal message from me, I love that you're a listener, but I do hope your team loses. With that, on to the episode. Katie Hill, welcome to Staffer. (laughs) Jim, thanks for having me. (laughs) It is so wonderful to have you on the show, to see you, to be able to talk with you. Um, I think, as you know, uh, this is my ode to staffers and their experiences and what they can go on to do in life. And your story is just so interesting. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to diving into every aspect of it. But I'd like to start at the beginning. So tell me, where did you grow up and what was you know your family like? Yeah, I, so I am a Nashville, Tennessee native born and raised. And uh, my parents and brother uh, still live there. So I'm lucky enough to get home often, obviously not in COVID. And, you know, I uh, I feel like I, I sort of had the, maybe the perfect upbringing for what I ended up doing because I was raised by kind of two really wonderful parents. My, my father is a public servant for the state of Tennessee um, in the finance and administration department. So he was a, a budget director. And uh, a wonderful writer in his own right and intellectual and uh, kind of brilliant thinker. And my uh, my mother uh, was a journalist. And so, you know, uh, every morning, you know, over breakfast, it was sitting at the kitchen table and pouring over the newspaper. Uh, and, you know, my dad would teach me to read the baseball box scores and then eventually, you know, to to flip through the business pages. And my mother would sit there with a red pen and she was writing for the, you know, she had written for the Nashville Tennessean and then uh, taught at Vanderbilt 
um, and kind of oversaw their student media for a number of years before going back to the Tennessee and as a columnist. But she would sit there with a red pen and mark up the newspaper. So, you know, essentially copy editing it. Incredible. Yeah. Well, it was incredible. You know, so I and of course, I thought that was normal. And so, you know, to this day, I'm like triggered by typos, certainly in the newspaper, you know. And of course, it was always um, always a big deal in our house if somebody discovered a typo in the Sunday Times so, you know, again, I, I feel like a, a really good upbringing. And, and frankly, I'd put in a plug, too, that, you know, being raised by a journalist is sort of like being raised by a maybe a combination of a cop and a prosecutor. So, you know, you just like get that training from a very young age about how to sort of dodge questions, uh, you know, how, how to try to shape a story like you're not going to get away with anything. They can smell bullshit from a mile away. So that was very much, uh, very much, uh, you know, the house I grew up in. Yeah. So media and journalism and uh, matters of public affairs were part of the uh, conversation and in the, Con- just it was the atmosphere. Yeah. yeah, it was just like we, you know, my, my brother and I just soaked it in. And so it, you know, it started early in the morning. It was what we talked about all day. I mean, we're a family of news junkies and, you know, good Democrats and, um, you know, interested in the world and very curious about it. Uh, you know, so yeah, it, it, it sort of was just in the, in the ethos in our house. You mentioned the box. Sorry, let me say it, in the ether in our house, not the ethos. That was not what I meant. Right. Got it. So I got it. Um, you mentioned the box scores, uh, as well. Uh, so tell me about sports and, and how you came to fall in love with sports. Yeah. Fell in love with sports from a young age. You know, we were, uh, I sort of, I grew up, I was raised a Red Sox fan because my dad, um, is from the Boston area. Um, Although my mother is a Yankees fan. So that's, uh, that's you, my household. I'm a Yankees <laughs> fan. My wife is a Red Sox fan. So I know that it can work. Well, there you go. Well, that, that's funny. I, I, I won't tell you that, that my parents actually ended up getting divorced, um, <laughs> which I, I, you know, you could easily put on the sort of Yankees Red Sox, uh, you know, we uh, could chasm or whatever. We could. But um, <laughs> but anyway, so, yeah, you know, grew up in a, in a kind of sports household, um, but was a, a soccer fan. Huge, just soccer nut. And so, and, and, and still am to this day, of course, um, I love football above all other sports, but, you know, really when the, uh, when the Tennessee Titans came to town, you know, our family was, was hooked. And so, you know, football became what we did on Sundays kind of all day. Um, oh, that's yeah. Really so, nice. so, you, you know, so you went to games regularly. Yeah. Well, you know, went, went to a few Titans games for sure. Um, but it was sort of more like we would watch it, you know, watch it at home. Yeah. Uh, and then just, you know, it sort of obviously read the sports pages religiously. So you go off to college and you decide to study something that doesn't have anything to do uh, with public affairs or politics or sports. <laughs> and that is classical Greek, which That's is right. which could be a whole separate podcast of <laughs> you lecturing me uh, so I can learn something about classical Greek. Um but after, so you graduate, so you, you study, and I, and I do want to um, hear about how you, you know, kind of decided through, you, you know, at some point after your studies, you come back to Nashville, you uh, work for a nonprofit called Hands on Nashville, you then work for a PR agency, mm-hmm. and you eventually come to work for the local congressman. Mm-hmm. Um, how was it that you made that journey and decided that you needed to work in politics and then began as a press secretary yeah. for Jim Cooper. That's a great question. You know, and I think t- 
to all oversimplify this a little bit, but, and this maybe even goes back to the classical Greek question or even my, my upbringing, but I'm, um, I'm like a words and language person. And I've been obsessed with words and language and languages since I was a kid. And so, you know, fell in love with Latin from a young age and at a young age and started taking high school Latin when I was in middle school. And so had sort of aged out of that by the time I got to high school and then fell in love with classical Greek. And so it sort of rolls up into this idea of storytelling and narrative. And, and I think that is why I sort of naturally gravitated towards, you know, um, um, careers and communications, you know, and I love to write. Uh, but the other side of that too is, you know, this call towards public service and doing good. And so that was essentially why I decided to make the career shift. You know, I was working at a, a public affairs firm, public relations firm in Nashville that, you know, is a democratic leaning firm. I mean, did a, a, a lot of corporate communications, but also worked on grass tops and grassroots campaigns. And so I did a lot of that and realized, you know, I was just about to turn 30 and thought if we're going to make a move, you know, my, my then partner, now wife and I, if we're going to move somewhere else, you know, and, and if I'm going to make a career jump, this is probably the time to do it. And so this position opened up um, with my hometown Congressman, Jim Cooper, who is a terrific human being. Um, Truly. And we, we made the leap and moved up to Washington, you know, and I thought maybe we'll be here for two or three or four years and I'll move back to Nashville. And Jim, as you know, well, <laughs> you get to Washington and then like things take on a life of their own. And the next thing you know, uh, you've been there, for, you know, we were there for almost 10 years. Yeah. So, you know, talk about what makes it sticky, right? I mean, you, you moved to Washington, you began working for the congressman, you walk into the house office building every day and you're surrounded by your colleagues and staffers from lots of other offices all over the country. Talk to me about what you found appealing about that environment. Oh, my God. I mean, look, it, it was like every day was a feast, basically. It was just so much to learn, people to meet. You know, you're working. Of course, uh, the Hill the Hill likes to think of itself as the center of the universe, you know, and of course, staffers definitely think that. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, there is some a little bit of truth to that, right, which is that you're working on the most pressing issues facing the country. And you can do good at a scale that is not possible in a lot of other places and affect change at a scale, it, 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 on, on a large scale. So, you know, it was just every day was exciting and, and something different. And, and Congress itself, the Hill is, it reminded me at first, it was like Hogwarts where you've got, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, I remember my first week I was sitting there really just trying to figure out which end was up. And, um, and I got there right when all of the conversation was about sequestration. And I remember, you know, calling my mother on the phone, sort of panicking. And I was like, I don't know what, sequestration. Like, yeah. what is this? Right. You know, and, and the sequester and everybody was fluent in the lingo. And so I realized I had to get up to speed really quickly. Um, and, and that is a skill set I think you both need to be a have to have to be a successful staffer, but can hone over time. But, you know, I would be sitting in these meetings and like the, um, the clocks would go off, Yeah, you know, to signal votes and nobody would blink an eye. <laughs> And I was like, does nobody realize that these bizarre clocks are like making noises and the hands don't line up quite right? And like, are we in this is like Hogwarts, basically, <laughs> right. is sort of my thought. You know, you've got these buildings with odd tunnels, you know, uh, there's sort of lingo, there's different cliques and factions, you yes. know, there are definitely some Slytherins running around. So <laughs> fortunately, there are some Gryffindors. As well. I would say 
the Gryffindors outnumber the Slytherins. Yes, so. agreed, agreed. <laughs> um, you uh, went after uh, working for Congressman Cooper to work for an organization called Americans for Responsible Solutions. Uh, that is the organization that was founded by former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords and her husband, now Senator Mark Kelly. Uh, that organization is now known as Giffords. And for those who are not familiar with it, it is an advocacy group that fights for sensible gun control laws. Um, they are both, uh, Gabby Giffords and Mark Kelly, are both remarkable people. Yes, can you talk, remarkable human beings. Yes. Tr- can you talk a bit about them and kind of what you observed and learned from their leadership? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I only worked with them for a, a fairly short stint, but I, I they're they're unbelievable human beings, both of them, each in their own right. And, you know, Gabby is the embodiment of courage and sacrifice and grit and determination. And she still shows that every day. And I'm getting chills talking about her and, you know, getting to work for Mark now, Senator Kelly, you know, it, it was, um, it was interesting because when I, you know, uh, first was sitting down with him, um, one of my other colleagues remarked, I was marveling at how he operated in meetings and sort of how he brought this, um, intellectual rigor and efficiency to his decision-making. And I remarked on that to one of my colleagues who was like, yeah, he's a space shuttle commander. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, yes, that's part and parcel of the whole thing, right? He's an astronaut, you know? So, and then we would joke like, did you ever think you're going to like go have a drink at a bar with an astronaut? So, (laughs) you know, they're, they're really just unbelievable people who, you know, took this tragedy that would have leveled any of us and said, what can we, what can we make out of this? And so they've built an incredible organization, I think, you know, and, and I think they also saw a gap in the conversation where they themselves as gun owners thought, Hey, we can step up here and try to reach people in this very necessary debate. Um, and try to figure out some solutions that can move our country forward. Yeah. Um, your your career in, in politics and in public service continued. Um, you took a stint into the political realm uh, when uh, A.G. Doug Gansler ran for governor. That, uh, that ended in the primary. Um, but then you were tapped to be National Press Secretary for Healthcare at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And I think it is fair to say, without without diminishing at all the experiences that had come before that, that was a huge step um, in terms of platform and scale and visibility. Um, And I should note, you came to that role one year after the rollout of healthcare.gov, which President Obama referred to as, quote, a well-documented disaster. Um, <laughs> and and what we know that at that point we were into um, implementation of the Affordable Care Act, hugely important um, on the president's top legislative legacy item. Um, what, you know, what did you learn about managing a communications operation at that scale um, by doing it? Great question. You know, uh, it, it was it was interesting because I my my part of the entire of the communications operation was um, was fairly narrow. So I had visibility into the strategic 
planning side of all of this, of course, and and weigh into it. And in fact, you know, really help to drive the strategic uh, communications around the delivery system reform efforts um, that the department was working on, which, you know, is a huge part of kind of what the Affordable Care Act um, helped to to drive, you know, these these efforts to reform the healthcare system, even outside of getting people healthcare, you know, how to make our system more efficient, how to make it less fragmented, how to make it easier to get to the doctor and get your electronic medical records. And so you don't have to like go find a fax machine to fax things to your doctor. But the, the part of, you know, when it comes to sort of enrollment in the ACA that I was working on, it was the daily hand-to-hand combat with reporters. Mm-hmm. And that was what I thought about all day, every day you know, really, you know, reading every single story that was being written about us, bird dogging stories, you know, um, pitching stories, thinking about how we were being covered in the media. And so it was incredibly intense, you know, and I was working very closely with the White House on a daily basis because it was one of the top domestic priorities uh, for the president. And certainly coming, you know, on the heels of the um, initial failure of healthcare.gov, but then, of course, you know, um, millions and millions of people sign up, in fact, even blowing past their projections. And so as we were and I came on board to HHS um, along with Secretary, you know, right after Secretary Sylvia Burwell uh, had, had been confirmed and come on board. So there is a little bit of a changing of the guard and some fresh faces and kind of natural turnover that happens whenever one cabinet secretary leaves and a new one comes in. And so, you know, the team was really focused on um, the launch of this, the relaunch of healthcare.gov for the, the second open enrollment period, you know, and there was an intense focus in the press and I would say a, a deep skepticism um, of the administration. You know, they fe- the press felt like uh, they had been um, misled and that it, it had been difficult to get answers. And in fact, when I was interviewing for the HHS job at the White House, one of the people I interviewed with said, when I, when I asked, you know, tell me about the state of the relationship between HHS and its healthcare press corps. And, you know, this person said, couldn't be worse. Mm-hmm. But that means it's only upside, only, it can only go up from here, which was true. But that was sort of how I tried to approach it was to come in and listen and get to know the reporters who some of whom I knew already from the Hill and other places um, and, and get really get to know the ones I didn't know and listen and understand and sort of think of this in some respect as a customer service job. But also this idea that transparency is owed to the American people, because, you know, when you go into the administration and and you definitely you get this in Congress, too. Um, but I felt it in a more pronounced way in the executive branch this understanding that the taxpayers pay your salary. And that means all of them, including the ones that did not vote for the president who you're serving. And so, you know, being mindful of that and also that, you know, transparency is a thing that is um, expected. You know, that is so essential because the ethic that you're talking about, the principle is more important than the the job, right? Um which sometimes gets lost, like upholding that principle is the most important aspect of being a staffer. Yes, and, I agree. Right? Um, I, I, I totally agree because I think also built into that principle, Jim, is um, is humility. And I think that is like one of the most important things and the way staffers are portrayed in the, you know, in the pop in popular culture is humility is like not high on the list. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but to me, when I look at the most successful staffers, you know, that is is one of their one of their top principles. Yes. So well put. Um, 
you performed at that job at such a high level that the White House decided they needed you uh, within the four walls of their building. You became assistant press secretary and spokesperson uh, in the White House. Very few people have the responsibility to speak on behalf of the president of the United States. Um, I had a small experience in that, in that my audience was elected officials. And so when I was speaking to them, you know, I was representing the president, his point of view, the White House, um, but it wasn't public. And you were, were, you know, every sentence you were uttering, you know, to reporters was public. Were there parameters? Were there sort of rules that you followed yourself to make sure that every utterance was, you know, in the channel that it needed to be? Because when a spokesperson is speaking on behalf of the president, those words do resonate around the globe. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And we we were mindful of that every second of every day. And, you know, the Obama administration was kind of famously I would say disciplined. Others would say, I have, have a whole range of other maybe more derogatory words for, you know, a control freak and all the rest of it about this. But to me, it was completely necessary. It is for the um, information in media environment that we live in. You know, that one errant tweet can uh, move around the world before you have the chance to delete it. You know, we, I mean, we see this all the time that, you know, a, a comment that um, is misconstrued can a comment can easily be misconstrued and then you really can't ever get it back. And so, no, I um, always moved with extreme caution. And uh, and, and I'll tell you, it, it, and this is just sort of my own personal um, orientation is um, like only go on the record as a last resort. Mm-hmm. Because to me, if you're if you're a really good spokesperson, you can do the work that you need to do and accomplish what you need to accomplish, you know, doing a lot of work off the record or on background or on deep background with reporters and, and sort of working through the relationships that you have with them, connecting them with subject matter experts who, you know, may know more than I do about a certain topic um, and, and letting them really speak, you know? So I sort of really tried not to be lazy about it as a spokesperson and just push out a whole bunch of quotes. And I also don't really care about, I I don't particularly like seeing my name, uh, quoted in, in, in the newspaper, which probably makes me like a a really bad spokesperson, but, um, but no, so, so, so then when, you know, and I have to say that that was, was fairly true at the white house because, you know, you have the top spokesperson who was my boss, Josh Ernest, who was the white house press secretary. And so a lot of my job was really, when reporters would come to me looking for information, funneling them to the daily White House press briefing and saying, hey, you know, Josh is going to talk about this when he goes out to brief at 12 or 1230. You know, you should ask him then. And then, of course, in the daily prep session with Josh, making sure that he understood exactly kind of what the parameters were and the fault lines and and what questions he could expect. Mm -hmm. I I was a press secretary early in, in my career, never at the level, obviously, that you have achieved. I always found it nerve wracking to be talking with reporters, even when the rules were, you know, on background or you know, not on the record. And for a time, you know, my goal was to be able to do that without getting nervous. Uh, I never achieved, you know, not getting nervous. <laughs> and I eventually sort of gave myself permission to say, you know what, maybe that's okay. Like, if you're not think, nervous, maybe I think nervousness is good. Yeah, it's maybe good, you're, right? you're about to make a bad, a bad mistake. I agree. I, I think a little bit of fear actually is good in this case, right? Because it keeps you on your toes and 
Um, and, and, you know, you do get less nervous over time, especially, you know, when you, when you get to know these reporters and, and at the white house, you know, it's like, you're going on foreign trips together and, you know, staying up late drinking and far flung places. And so you really do get to know them and they become friends, but that's where you really have to check that because the rule still stands. And I still think of this to this day that even when you're off the record, don't say something off the record that you don't want to end up in print because it happens, you know, and, and not always in a malicious way, of course, but, you know, accidentally or, or whatever else. And so you really do have to be careful. Yeah. You know, tell me about journalists, your observations of journalists. You, you grew up with one. Um, and you work with them all the time. What what do you love about journalists? What frustrates you about journalists? Um, this could be a whole other podcast of like twelve episodes. <laughs> it's true. So maybe it's true. maybe your your next venture we could do this. My <laughs> critique of the media. This is also a constant um, uh, topic of conversation, both at home uh, with my wife, but also when I go home to Nashville with my family. So yeah. Um, yeah, you know, what do I love about journalists? I, I do. I think they're a particular, uh, particular species that a particular type of person is drawn to, to become a journalist. And in, in it's, it's, you know, I, I think it's sort of, and I, this is very, I'm overgeneralizing here, but people who are curious about the world, who, um, are skeptical about the world, who are skeptical of those in power, I think appropriately so, um, you know, and who ideally, I mean, it's the whole, you know, the the old adage about um, uh, afflict the comfort, uh, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Yeah. Right. That is like their mantra. Now, I um, am not sure you actually see that as often as you should in modern day journalism. And there are a variety of reasons for that, where the incentives are not always aligned that way. You know, um, I will spare you sort of my rant about, you know, um, where 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 journalism is in this country right now and my deep um my deep sorrow over it and you know um the fact that the financial incentives don't align all you know they sort of align towards clicks as opposed to you know deep and powerful reporting but i will say also that i you know what what our our country has been through over the last 5 years um and the fact that we have got dogged journalists who put themselves at risk both here and overseas to write about, you know, what's been going on and where we are as a nation um, is just really unbelievable. Yeah. So we owe a, and we owe a lot to them, you know, because I think people who, again, at this point, you know, younger people who get into journalism know that this is a career that is not stable, you know, where layoffs almost, a, you know, not a day goes by where you don't read about some outlet, you know, getting bought or laying people off, um, you know, so it is... Um, it's pretty admirable. Yeah. It's, and it's it sure admirable. isn't easy. No, you know? uh, no, it's not. Yeah. It's, it's not easy. Yeah. Um, so you engaged with reporters and represented the president so well that when the Obama administration ended, President Obama asked you a very, uh, in a very small group of staffers to, to come with him to the office of President Obama, sort of the post-administration office. Most people don't even know that that such an office exists. So can you talk a bit about what that office is and what your role was there? Yeah. So um, after the White House, President and Mrs. Obama stood up uh, their family office, also kind of referred to as the personal office. And uh, each former president has one. And essentially, the office is the nerve center for everything that the two of them do. And so the kind of strategic hub. 
And it, it, so if you think of it that way, then the different spokes of the hub for President Obama are um, the Obama Foundation, you know, his his top priority post-presidency, you know, which is its own organization, its own entity, has its own staff. But, you know, we worked very closely with them. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it um, includes, of course, his post-White uh, House political activity, which we ran out of our office. Um, his uh, kind of commercial dealings, you know, he has partnerships with Netflix and with Spotify um, to produce, I think, really in incredibly meaningful content. And so, um, again, there are teams, there, there is a, a production company that they stood up called Higher Ground Productions. It's doing really terrific work that we worked very closely with. Um, and then, of course, his his um, book, his various books at this point that are kind of out there, but his presidential memoir. So we worked very closely with the publisher and their team on that. And so essentially our job was, uh, you know, I used to joke that sometimes it was, you know, playing air traffic control and making sure that, you know, two press releases weren't going out at, on a Tuesday kind of thing from different parts of the orbit. But much more broadly than that, it was taking this very strategic look at, you know, people, um, you know, the average Joe sees Barack Obama, but behind the curtain, there are all of these different work streams going on. And so how are we telling a cohesive story about what he's doing post-presidency? You know, and I have sort of left out probably the most important strategic question in this, which is that, you know, uh, <clears throat> what do you do when you have an incumbent in the Oval Office whose North Star is undoing uh, his predecessor's legacy? And so that was what I spent also an inordinate amount of time kind of working on and thinking about. And, you know, when I was was talking to the personal office about coming on board in 2017, you know, and talking with President Obama about it, you know, the whole thing was, you know, there's no playbook for a post-presidency like this. Yeah. You know, both in terms of the ambitions that he and Mrs. Obama have, but also for the political environment that we were in and where the country was at that time. And so we've got to build the playbook. And so that's essentially what we did. Yeah. Um, it was, I mean, you, you were part of a team that has embarked upon building a, a post-presidency like no other. Some of the things you've talked about are, are really remarkable. Um you know, the higher ground production company that's, you know, to take one example is just yeah. something that, you know, hadn't been conceived of before. Right. right. And they do have such voices, the two of them, to make lasting change yes. still, you know, right, yes. yet to come. Definitely, right. And it, it's sort of the, one of the questions of how do you do that when you no longer have the White House platform? And there are other ways then to affect the culture you know, and to, you know, to lift up voices that haven't been heard before, to tell stories that need to be told and to shine a light where it needs to be shown. And so that was, of course, a lot of the thinking behind standing up higher ground. Yep. Um, I want to talk about um, you for a moment and you will probably, I, I know you are a humble person, uh, but I'm going to uh, reference the fact that in 2016, you were recognized by out Magazine as one of their top 100 LGBTQ leaders for your work to advance advance equality. Um, you know, I had this conversation with uh, Kelly Burton a couple weeks ago, uh, and you know, we were talking about talent and assembling teams. And I said, you know, the D trip is often a place of apex performers, and she said, yes, but. It's important to identify folks who aren't yet 
you know, haven't yet demonstrated that they are quote unquote apex, but they have all of the talent, all of the ability. They just need to be given that opportunity. And so tell me about how you assemble teams and how you identify those folks that have those attributes, but don't yet have, haven't yet been given that opportunity. Oh my gosh, Jim, what a great question. This is what I am spending currently so much of my time thinking about here, uh, here at the NFL. But certainly I, you know, certainly I did also, um, in kind of in, in previous jobs that I had and, you know, to give you sort of one, one adjacent example, you know, it being at the White House towards the end of the administration, you know, there is a lot of focus on how do you retain talent through the end and, and get people to stay until, you know, mid-January 2017 when when the allure is going to be to, you know, go take a job because you really need people there to, fin- to finish everything out. Um, and so that was, again, a great example of, you know, you have people who are top performers um, or are close to being top performers, maybe they're junior, and there's more than enough work to go around. So how can we kind of level some of those people up, give them bigger projects to work on, make sure that we're recognizing their talent publicly, even, you know, reward them in ways like in, in thinking about agency staff. So I was, you know, talking all the time to the, the folks at HHS and the Department of Education and the VA and, and some other cabinet agencies, you know, who were sort of under like under my communications purview. And it would be things like, you know, thank you for your work on this incredible project, um, you know, where we know everybody is stretched really thin and just beyond exhausted because, you know, we're, we're so close to the end. But, you know, why don't you come and we'll have, you know, a happy hour at the White House on one of the balconies at EEOB, you know, or, you know, do you want to go, bowl? you know, maybe it's like bowling in EEOB or why don't you come sit in the back of the, uh, the briefing room and watch the briefing and then like come up and meet with Josh Ernest, you know, for a few minutes after the briefing and, and yeah. that kind of thing. So, you know, so, so that was just sort of one example, but I would say more broadly, um, you know, I sort of really try to take time one-on-one with team members and understand what their motivations are, sort of meet them where they are, you know, what are they interested in? What do they naturally gravitate towards? Um, you know, and, and then kind of try to figure out where, you know, identify opportunities where, Hey, you know, I'd like to give you this, this project to work on. I'd like to give you this opportunity. Um, and then, you know, you give them a chance to show their stuff and sometimes they surprise you. Sometimes they underwhelm you, you know, but I also think that being really direct and transparent is, is key in that and key in helping people develop as um, both employees and as future leaders. Yep. So now at the NFL, uh, in, in the role that you have today, I guess my first and most important question is, is there anything you can do to help the New York Giants? <laughs> do, well, do you know any offensive linemen uh, in your that, personal that's life? That's incredible. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll poke my hat out in the hall and see if I can find anybody. No, I, I'm kidding. Listen, Jim, you know, I love all 32 teams equally. So of course, uh, I, I, of course, can't comment on, on any team because I love them all. Of equally. course, of course. But uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's funny. You know, something about I have I have long lamented the fact that political reporting has become much more like sports reporting over my mm. time you know, in politics. Mm, yes. Um, Me too. But Me too. the, you know, I guess the, the, where I would look to the sports world um, positively is like, I don't care what someone's political, you know, point of view is. If they're a Giants fan, 
we can go have a beer and a great time watching a game. Or if they or if they are a fan of the the Washington football team, which I do not like, we keep our disagreement in like a friendly space while yep. we also have a beer. And though those skills <laughs> seem to be evaporating or you know at too quick a pace in the political realm. Yes, I agree. Listen, it's become so tribal, right? And in in a way to your point that and this is one of the, you know, when I was thinking about what I might want to do next after um after uh being in in President Obama's personal office and sort of thinking about, you know, as as a sports uh, as a sports fan in general, but thinking about kind of sports is obviously not only a, a massive platform, but, you know, one of the kind of few remaining unifying um, things in this country, Yes, frankly, you know, I mean, if, if you think about it, it, it sort of is like, uh, you know, it used to be that we all watched the same, you know, you know, couple evening news broadcasts and, you know, we're sort of looking at the same things and absorbing information in the same ways. And now it's obviously an incredibly fragmented landscape, but look like close to hundred million people are still tuning into the Super Bowl. And, you know, when you look at the, um, you know, the ratings of, uh, of football games, again, to your point that it is really kind of one of those things where, you know, you're, you're a Giants fan, you bump into your friend or somebody, frankly, a complete stranger at an airport, you know, who's a Washington football team fan, and you're going to chit chat about the game and you're going to, you know, each lament about whatever's going on with your team or sort of, you know, trash talk each other a little bit. Yep. No. And it is kind of one of those binding forces, I think. Yeah, for sure. That's right. For sure. And I do. And I'm, you know, deeply distressed by kind of how, um, how Washington is functioning at yep. the moment. You know, something else I think is, um, a corollary between your work at the White House and and now at the NFL is they are both the premier institutions in their fields. News is made every single day and there is so much happening that's outside of your control, right? So, I mean, (laughs) there's so much that you are trying to communicate and yet at the same time you are dealing with so much incoming every day, right? Completely. So, you know, how do you manage that um, in your current role and with your team? Yes. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's a little of both. I mean, you have to be well-versed. You know, it's the same at HHS, the same at the White House. I mean, frankly, the same, you know, if you're working on the Hill, well-versed in, you know, being able to manage the incoming, you know, sort of like a ninja a little bit where you're sort of, you know, dispatching with that at the same time that you are um, still thinking proactively about whatever it is that you're trying to do. You know, I actually think I'm sure I could use some, uh, I'll try not to like use too many tortured football analogies, but it is a little bit like, you know, you're the quarterback, the pocket is collapsing. You sort of see, or, you know, you see the blitz coming, you deal with it ably, you sort of dodge out of the pocket and then you're still able to toss the ball down the field. And so to me, it is always about keeping your eye as far down the field as you can. Yep. And again, I think that the staffers who are the most successful in, in any space, whether it's communications, policy, ledge, you know, they're the ones who are able to do that where, you know, you don't let yourself, it's too easy to get bogged down in that day-to-day bullshit. Um, you know, even when it isn't bullshit and it's incredibly serious stuff and you've got to be able to do that. And then you still got to be able to remember, you know, what is the message that you're trying to drive? What is the strategic plan that you're executing against? What are the things you need to be thinking about three months down the road? And also the interplay between what is happening today. And if we're making a decision today on a sort of smaller day-to-day thing, does it have implications three or six months down the road that, um, that we need to be keeping in mind? Mm -hmm. Now, it's uh, that whole, you know, the cliche about seeing around corners. 
Yeah. You know, I love that. It's true. It's true. I mean, the best staffers are able to do that. And, and tell me about the different press corps, right? I mean, they're they're both enormous and, as you said, fragmented, aggressive. Um, but what learnings from the political space are you finding, you know, useful in the sports world? And and what new things are you learning in the sports world? Yeah. No, listen, I, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of, I think, kind of the two biggest similarities between the White House and the NFL, which is that they both have huge platforms and they both have huge dedicated press corps that cover their every single move. And so, you know, there is a, a lot of familiarity and a sort of muscle memory that I have, you know, because of that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I uh, yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, I would say, you know, I mean, the similarities is the sort of easy, easy, boring one is that, you know, you've got, you know, you've got your dailies and your wires and your TV networks, and then you've got your trade press, and then you've got your local and regional papers that are incredibly important. Um, you know, the analogy here, I think, too, is that you also have, um, you know, at the White House, you have cabinet agencies who sort of are dealing with their own press corps, you know, uh, and then here we've got 32 clubs who each have their own press corps too, right? That are, you know, in, in, depending on the media market, really huge. Um, and so sometimes we are talking to them, but a lot of times they are the ones really doing the day to day. And so they're our partners. You know, um, we talk constantly, many, many times a day with the um, communication staff at the various clubs. And so try to stay very synced up with them. Um, you know, but I think it is kind of stepping back a little bit. It's about understanding how information moves through the media ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to get something out there, how does that how does that work? And if somebody is is reporting something, so who 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 do you want to get a piece of information to, um, to to watch it begin to work its way through the ecosystem in a way that's beneficial to us? Yeah. You know, and I will say that now the the, the big difference here, I will say, is that you know we have um, uh, the NFL Network. And so we have these owned and operated channels. And, you know, you could say that there are similarities to the White House, not that we had our own, you know, TV station by by any stretch. Um, but, you know, obviously massive presence on on social media. But here, again, the owned and operated channels where our social, you know, legending, or leveraging our digital and social media platforms here is something that we're, we're doing a lot of thinking about. Um, and those are kind of housed um, in our marketing department. And so we kind of work very, very closely with them. Um, and then the NFL Network is headquartered in Los Angeles. And I was actually just out there last week because um, we're in new facilities, gorgeous new facilities there right across the street from SoFi Stadium. But it, it, and again, it's kind of, you know, it's it's a network that has our name on it, but also employs journalists. And so, you know, really terrific journalists. And so it is not the kind of thing where we tell them what to write because there is like a, you know, a, a firewall there. Um, but, you know, certainly is the kind of thing where... Um, you know, they're kind of running. It's all football all the time. Yeah. You know, so. Well, I, I can't think of anyone I know better suited than you uh, for this role and the, the scale of the operation to explore new tools and tactics um, in such a high stakes, high visibility environment. And I am so glad as a sports fan and as a fellow staffer that you are that you are where you are today. Jim, thank you. It's um, I can't believe I finally found a job where I don't have to hide the fact that I'm keeping ESPN on my TV. <laughs> that's right. Or the NFL you're doing network. Your job. You know, now that's watching, exactly right. You're doing your job. Oh, that's exactly that's brilliant. Um, <laughs> let me. I, I do. There are a couple of recurring uh, uh, questions that I like to ask. Um, okay, time machine. If you could go back 
and give yourself, your young self, any, you know, piece of advice, what would it be? Yeah, I think it's I think it's two pieces of advice. One that I have not taken, <laughs> but that I so why I would tell it to my young self, which is um, trust the process, like trust the path. You know that I have always um, at every stop along the way have wondered, am I sort of in the right place? Am I doing enough? Um, am I am I accomplishing enough? Kind of questions, you know. And of course, that's easier in hindsight to just tell your younger self to like chill the hell out. Um, yeah. The other piece of advice, you know, that that I would give that I um, do give to younger people is um, in your jobs to to be helpful to people. You know, that was actually we used to joke at HHS. That was the highest compliment you could give someone Yeah, <laughs> was like, oh, my God, so and so is so helpful because the job is so difficult. And the organization was so big and so complicated that you spent so much of your time just trying to figure out basic information that you needed to do your job. It, but this applies to any job. And I'll tell you that when I um, uh, would listen to advice that President Obama would give the interns, his his version of this was to be useful. So I sort of think like be helpful, you know, uh, similar ideas. Yeah. Um, you know, that if you were thinking about uh, being helpful and not just to your bosses, because that's the oldest trick in the book uh, in terms of managing up is like make your boss's life easier, but like to your colleagues, like the people, your peers, but also to p more junior staff members, just be helpful. You know, you know oh, that's such great advice, but it's so well put too because of its simplicity and the um, the character trait that's sort of built yeah. into helpful, like helpfulness. Yes, that's right. Right. It is a kindness it is yes. a collaborative team yes. effort uh, yep. that's almost like it's adjacent, right? It is not about advancement or 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 performance in a no. right. No, exactly. But in fact, what it is about at its core is team. Yes. You know that if I'm helping you, that we're going to be better together as a team. Yes. You know, and that ultimately the sum is going to be greater than the whole of the parts. Yep. Okay, my last question for you. I have this uh, this notion that maybe one day I'll be able to raise the funds and build on the National Mall a Hall of Fame to staffers. And in this in this Hall of Fame, I will you know put sculpted busts of them and plaques. Um, and you, Katie, get to nominate uh, somebody for the Staffer Hall of Fame. Wow. And I know it's a tough question, but it is really tough. Who would you nominate for the Staffer Hall of Fame? Yeah, this is a really, really hard question, Jim. Um, and I might cheat by like name checking some of the people who would be on my short list for my one nomination. I would put Jen Psaki right up there, you know, a dear colleague and friend from the Obama White House. I would put Josh Ernest up there, the former White House press secretary. I would put Cecilia Munoz right up there, you know, our former wonderful um, head of the Domestic Policy Council in the Obama White House. But I think my nomination would go to Dennis McDonough who may not count currently because he is a cabinet secretary. Uh, you know, he runs the Department of Veterans uh, Veterans Affairs. Yes. But I want to nominate him in his capacity as White House Chief of Staff. Um, I just, he was a marvelous person to work for and to work with. And I was lucky enough to get to kind of work closely with him just in an unofficial capacity you know, um, in the president's personal office post White House. Um, but, you know, the way he carried himself as chief of staff, I mean, I, in my mind, that is the hardest job in government. 
Yeah. Uh, really, you know, you, you could probably along with the White House press secretary, I think it's just a thankless job where no one is ever fully happy with the job that you're doing. You know, some faction or group is always mad at you um, and you're both, you know, you're essentially running the day to day of the government, you yeah. know, and then also surfacing the really high level strategic questions for the president um, to, to think about. And the, just the way that Dennis carried himself around the White House and in the West Wing, you know, it was kind, humble. Um, focused, efficient, like no nonsense, um, no time for bullshit, but also was happy to talk to you about, you know, how the Vikings had played on Sunday, you know? So yes. I just, and it kind of, I, I just remember thinking, you know, he's the kind of guy and, and, and the, the sort of behavior that, um, that that led to from staffers, it was like people would have followed him into the fire. Right. You know, just the loyalty that that inspired, you know, and sort of knowing that he always had our backs. Um, yeah, just an incredible, incredible staffer. Cause it, again, it comes with that. You just, the staffer mentality of like, you're working your ass off around the clock, you know, for some, for a, a cause and a person who sort of is bigger than all of us. Yep. Oh, well, such a fantastic nomination. And, and to be honest, Katie, it's no surprise to me that you admire those attributes because you do exemplify them. And I just want to close by saying thank you again for your time. I'm such an admirer of yours. I'm so happy um, with the role that you're in today and that our paths have crossed. Um, so thank you, truly. Jim, thank you so much for having me on. It was such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. And, uh, you know, hopefully some young staffer is listening to this and thinking like politics is something I'd like to get involved in. Yes, you're here. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.